Um, well, uh, we're going to jump straight in. So if you've got a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the, uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia today. So uh, go to Revelation chapter 3. We'll be in verses 7 through 13. So go there and we'll get to work. This is the word of Jesus to us. To the, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, um, a few weeks ago, uh, my parents were moving, and uh, in the process of moving, uh, they came across an old class project of mine uh, from the ninth grade. So it was this, uh, this book that I had written, uh, this project that I had done in Computer Ed 2. Uh, so if you ever need computer help, just know that that is the extent of my knowledge. Okay, just putting that out there. Um, but uh, but they, they had this project, and the name of it was the legacy of Brandon Live. So right out of the gate, you know that this is going to be good. Um, so my, my family went to visit them at their new place, and uh, we got there, and they brought out this book, and um, they showed it to us. And so immediately we kind of gathered up, and we started reading through it. And uh, basically what it was was just chapter by chapter. It was me as a 14 or 15-year-old kid talking about my life up to that point, all of my various adventures and experiences. And, uh, and so it was elementary school and my favorite family vacations. But the best part was towards the end of the, the book, there was a, an entire chapter, and it was just entitled future plans. So immediately, everyone's interest was piqued. Everybody wanted to know, okay, what did Brandon as a as a, uh, a ninth grader see himself becoming, right? What was my idea of, of greatness? What, what did I think I would achieve? What were my hopes and dreams? So I want to share with you just one paragraph from that chapter because it would be weird if I'd shared the whole chapter. Uh, it would be an awkward sermon. Um, but uh, this, is, this is one paragraph that I think really sums it all up. So this is just kind of from the, the middle of it, but, but this will give you an idea of what I thought greatness really was. It says, after college, I want to play football in the National Football League. <laughs> okay. Um, originally, I wanted to be a male model, but it turned out that I'm not that good looking, so that won't work out. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I would like to play for the Dallas Cowboys because they are my favorite team. 
it will be tough for me to get into the NFL, but I think I can do it. All I have to do is work hard and improve, and if I do that, I can do anything. My ultimate goal, as far as football is concerned, is to win the Super Bowl. It seems a little far-fetched. I'm not sure which part of that seems far-fetched. Maybe just the Super Bowl part. Um, seems a little far-fetched, but I think it could happen. Now, I share that with you for a couple of reasons. Number one, other people have seen this, and so I've got to get ahead of this story so that I can control the narrative a little bit. All right, so that's one thing. But secondly, and way more importantly, um, there, there is a reality that every single one of us come into this room today, and we all come and we bring this, this idea of what greatness is, right? We all, have, we all have a different idea, and probably for most of us, it doesn't involve the NFL or Super Bowls or anything like that, but we all come in and we have some notion of what greatness really looks like, right? Now, that's, that's things like having a lot of influence, that may to you, you may think of, about being well-respected. You may think about uh, just being, being loved and uh, achieving a level of, of satisfaction and comfort in your life. Um, and we all come with these ideas uh, that we, we sort of dwell on and they kind of come from within. But this has also been perpetuated by a culture that says greatness is determined by things like how many followers and likes and how big your reach on social media is, right? Your, your greatness is determined by the amount of people who esteem you and speak well of you and, uh, and say nice things about you, how high you're able to, to climb the ladder of success, that, that uh, greatness is really determined by the amount of toys you have, right? All the stuff uh, that, that functions basically like trophies that just point to your success and to your greatness. But what we're going to see in, in this letter is that despite what the culture says, Jesus takes our ideas of greatness and he takes the world's ideas of greatness and he completely turns those ideas on their head. He turns them upside down. See, the, the church in Philadelphia was not an impressive church. They weren't a big church. They weren't a uh, significant church. If we think about the church in Sardis that we studied last week, right, that was a church that Jesus said had a reputation for being alive, right? What Jesus was saying, hey, at least on the outside to the culture, you're alive. You seem great. You seem like a really successful church. And the culture was saying, hey, the church in Philadelphia to the watching world, not only were they not great, but they were kind of a joke. They were nobody. And yet Jesus is going to speak to them. And in the same way that Sardis had a reputation for greatness, they had a reputation for being alive, but they were actually dead. Jesus, knowing the works of the Philadelphian church, is going to show them that while they are small, while they are insignificant, in the world's eyes, while they are failing, Jesus is going to hold them up and he's going to say, hey, this is true greatness. So the question we're going to wrestle with today as we learn from this letter to the Philadelphian church, the question we're going to wrestle with is what is true greatness as defined by Jesus? What does it look like to not be great in the eyes of the world, but to look great in the eyes of Jesus and to hear him say to us, well done, well done. So 
I want to look at this text, and, and I want to give you three characteristics, three identifying markers of true greatness that Jesus shows us in this church. So the first one is weakness. Weakness. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I've set an open door, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. So Jesus opens this letter, he introduces himself, and then uh, he goes on and uh, follows that up with a really discouraging compliment, right? You ever get those? Like, okay, I think you meant to be nice there, but my feelings are hurt now. So um, Jesus comes to this church and he says, hey, you know how you feel weak? You know how you guys really feel pretty powerless? Well, that's because you are. Isn't that good news? And the church is like, okay, thank you, Jesus. That's not encouraging. But the reality is this actually wasn't news to the Philadelphian church, right? This was, this was confirmation. This was what they had heard um, from the culture. They'd heard about their, their weakness, their insignificance, their ineptitude. But the difference is that what the world meant as an insult, Jesus is saying, hey, actually... It's not a bad thing. Actually, there's an opportunity here. So look at what Jesus says. He says, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, the Bible uses that metaphor of an open door a couple of different ways. If you think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about this open door of salvation, right? So Jesus talks about uh, this narrow path and this narrow gate that leads to eternal life and to his kingdom. And, uh, and he, he references this open door of salvation. And there's an element of that in this passage, but that's not the main thing that he's getting at here. The primary use of the metaphor in this letter is the open door of service. The open door of service. We see this a lot in the Apostle Paul's writings. Yep. So uh, Paul goes uh, and plants a church in Ephesus, and uh, he, he writes uh, specifically about that to the church in Corinth. He says about his time in Ephesus, he says, a great door for effective work was opened to me. Right? He's saying, hey, we've had this missional success in Ephesus, and it's not because I'm so great. Like, that's totally not it. In fact, Paul, a lot, says, hey, you know what? I'm really weak, and Jesus is strong, and in my weakness, his power rests on me. Isn't that incredible? So Paul is not saying, hey, I'm awesome, so we're doing great in Ephesus. No, he's saying Jesus has opened an incredible door, an incredible opportunity. And so what Jesus is doing is, is he's affirming this church. He's saying, hey, I know your works, and I see the ways that you guys haven't just walked through the door of salvation. You're not only concerned with what I've done for you. No, you've actually, uh, you've actually walked through the door of service, right? You're trying to love people. Even in your weakness, you're pushing back darkness. And as a result, Jesus is saying he's going to open this door of opportunity to them. And that's actually really, really encouraging to this church. John Stott says it this way. He says, Christian believers who've received salvation as a free gift from God through Jesus Christ, are deeply concerned about the material and spiritual welfare of their fellow human beings. Having gone in through the door of salvation, they hurry out through the door of service to look for others and in the words of Jesus, compel them to come in. So this would have been a door of opportunity and an encouragement to this church. Now, we don't know exactly what that door of opportunity was for them, 
right? There are scholars that think because of their geographical location, because of what was happening at the time, uh, they were actually in a great position to just be a missionary city. This was a place where language and culture was being exported, and so they were in a great spot. It looks to us, at least, like Jesus was setting them up with an open door. But if we were to just um, put ourselves in the shoes of this church, we're hearing Jesus say at a time when when we maybe haven't really seen this open door, we're hearing Jesus say, hey, I know that you have but little power. But in the future, I'm going to open a door for you and you will not be hindered by your weakness. My power is actually gonna shine through you, right? Now, if we were to take a step back and, and kind of ask ourselves, where do we have but little power? Like frontline church, where are we weak? Where um, do we feel our limitations? How does our culture view us? Right, they might view us as just one church out of like a million churches in Oklahoma City, right? We're really insignificant, right? It's just us. Our pastors don't have book deals we meet in a fitness center, right? Like, that doesn't seem very important, right? In the eyes of, of the world, we're not that important. Our social media feed sucks, right? That's a fair point. So, so the culture looks at us and goes, man, you guys are just, you're irrelevant. You're not important. There's nothing really all that special about you. And listen, friends, we, we don't know what the open door was to the church in Philadelphia, but here's some things that we do know. We know that Jesus has set some open doors before us. We know that, right? We know that, that God has actually set us on Jesus, the solid rock, and he says things like, the gates of hell will not prevail against my people. He says, you've received power because the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and, and now I'm sending you to be my witnesses. He says, I, I've prepared works that you might walk in them. And he says all of that, knowing our weakness. He knows where we lack power. He knows where we're small. And some of you need to hear this. Jesus knows that you have but little power, okay? For the, the stay-at-home mom, you're surrounded by kids every single day. You feel like you never leave your house. And unless you start like an epic mom blog, you have no influence in this life. And you, you feel that, and we can say that kind of jokingly, but you feel that. And Jesus says, I know, I know. And maybe you're here and you're an empty nester and um, kids are out of the house. Your hair, if you have it, is way more gray than it used to be. And you've retired from that job where you used to have influence, you used to have control, and you used to have power, and now you feel like you've maybe just lost yourself. And you're stepping into a season where you have less control, less power. Or maybe you're somebody who, you're in a career, or you're a student, and you are at the bottom of the totem pole, the bottom of the food chain. Nobody listens to you, you go to work and you answer to like everybody there. Nobody answers to you. Nobody listens to you. Right? You come home. Nobody listens to you. You call the dog. The dog's like, nope, not going to listen to you. And you have little power. And Jesus comes to you and he says, hey, I know. I see. But 
I've set this open door before you that you might walk through it. That you might step into the things to which I'm calling you. That you might actually be faithful. And they may seem small. Some of those things may seem really insignificant in the eyes of the world. But Jesus is saying, hey, those things matter to me. I see you. I know you. And I'm opening a door that you might, that you might be glad and boast in your weakness. And my power might rest upon you. So Jesus says, number one, you want to know what true greatness is? It's, it's weakness. And number two, he says, it's obedience. Look at verse eight. Towards the end, he says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. All right, so what does that have to do with obedience? What is, what is Jesus talking about here? What Jesus is saying to this church is, hey, you've, you've kept my word. You have not denied my name. You've put your faith in, in Christ alone, and you're following Jesus. And as a result, Jesus says, hey, you are my people. You are my people, the church not just those who are ethnically Jewish. You might have thought those were my people, but I'm saying that you are my people. Now, the reason this hits a nerve in Philadelphia is because um, this is a church that has some Jews in it, but it also includes Gentiles. And so what we gather here is that this is a church that's actually hated, they're despised, they're rejected, they're persecuted by some Jews that have denied Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus says, these Jews are not the true Israel. They lie, that they're a synagogue of Satan. And then he goes a step further, he says, behold, he's saying this to the church, he says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now for the unbelieving Jews in that town, this would have really cut deep. Right? This would have been very confrontational, and it would have sounded really, really familiar. Here's why. The Old Testament has lots of passages, lots of verses that sound a lot like what Jesus is saying to this church that has some Gentiles in it. So I'll read you one from Isaiah 60, verse 14. It says, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord and the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is saying, hey, just like in the Old Testament, when I said, you are my people, now what I'm saying is, you are my people. G.K. Bill says all these Old Testament texts predict that Gentiles would come and bow down before Israel and Israel's God in the last day. But this prophecy has been fulfilled ironically in the Gentile church, which has become true Israel by virtue of its faith in Christ. In contrast, ethnic Israel fulfills the role of the Gentiles because of their unbelief. So here's the takeaway for the Philadelphian church. 
Right? Jesus is saying, hey, I know you and I see you and I see the way that um, you're obedient even when that obedience flies in the face of culture. I see the way that you're persecuted. I know that you're hated. I know that you're put to shame for following me, but I want to tell you that those promises that I made in the Old Testament, those are for you. You are my people. I love you. I see you. I'm proud of you. I will vindicate you. Now, we, it feels different for us because we're not in a culture that experiences that same kind of pushback, right? But, but just think about the implications of following Jesus in our context, right? What would it look like if you really, um, if you really knew Jesus you listened to his word, and then you weren't just merely a hearer of his word, but that you, you actually did what he said to do, and you walked in obedience. What if you actually didn't deny his name? What would that look like? What would, what would our city think about that, man? When, when we said, for example, when we, were, when we said, hey, you know what? Jesus actually has um, a sex ethic that is different than the world, Right? That we don't get to have sexual autonomy, do whatever we want with whoever we want. Je- Jesus says something different to the world, and we're going to say yes to Jesus. And look, we're not, we're not holding everybody else to that same standard, but what we're going to say is that we're followers of Jesus, we're his people, and so even if that looks crazy to the rest of the world, we're saying yes to him, and we're going to follow him. What, what would our city say if we just really follow Jesus? Well, we don't have to guess because they're, they're saying it now, right? They're saying, you're a bunch of prudes. You're really lame. You're crazy. You're out of touch, right? And when we look to culture to define us, when we look to culture uh, to tell us that we're great, that kind of pushback is soul-crushing, right? It kills us. But what happens when we look to Jesus to define us? What happens when we look to him for approval? Well, what happens is we start to hear his voice and it comes to us like it came to the church in Philadelphia and he says, hey, I see you. I see you. I know your works. He says, I'm proud of you. I love you so, so much. One of my um, favorite movies of all time, and one of the best movies of all time, if we're being honest, is Rocky. Um, Such a good movie. And uh, I'm going to use a Rocky illustration here. Um, I I thought about taking the low road and going with like a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air joke um, because of the church in Philadelphia. We don't know if this church was in West Philadelphia. We don't know that. The, the synagogue of Satan guys do kind of sound like a couple of guys who are up to no good, started making trouble, and they were, but we don't know. We don't know. But Rocky, right? Rocky's from Philadelphia, so make the connection there. Um, if you haven't seen Rocky yet, um, that's on you. Th- that movie's been out for like 50 years, so I'm going to spoil it for you. I'm not sorry, but you should still watch it because it's great. Um, Rocky, uh, if you don't know, um, Rocky is this boxer, and uh, there's this this incredible scene towards the end of the movie where, where you have Rocky and uh, up to this point, man, his whole life, not just his boxing career, but his entire life has just been a, a huge disappointment, 
right? He's never really amounted to much. He's kind of a nobody, right? People on the streets know him, but he's kind of a, kind of a lovable loser, right? And what happens in the movie is he gets this incredible opportunity to step into the ring with the champion, Apollo Creed, right? He gets a shot at the title as just a nobody. And so it's, it's crazy. And everybody's like, okay, this is a neat story, but this guy does not stand a chance, including Rocky, right? Everybody knows he's going to get knocked out in like the second round. And, uh, and so Rocky starts preparing for this fight. And what happens is he falls in love with this woman, Adrian, right? They fall in love, and she just, starts to, she just starts to call something really amazing out of him. And so he starts to train hard, and he starts to work at it, and, and, and what happens is uh, it, things start to shift, and Rocky actually starts to believe that maybe he can't beat the champ, but maybe he can actually stand in the ring toe-to-toe with the champ and not go down, not get knocked out. And so the night before the fight, he's just saying to Adrian, he's saying, hey, all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. That's all, that's all I want to do. And so the night of the fight, Rocky gets in the ring, and he steps in, and he starts punching, and he goes one round, two round, three rounds. He goes, he lasts the whole fight. And the final bell rings, and, and it's an amazing scene. The final bell rings, and uh, it's a split decision, and the judge comes over, and he calls Apollo Creed the winner. But that's background noise by this point. You see, the ring is overrun with people, reporters, and people just, just run into the ring and flood uh, the, the area, and Rocky's in the middle of it, and at that point, he's lost. He's still a nobody. He didn't win anything. And he's standing in the middle of this crowd, and he doesn't care about any of that. But he's, he's yelling, Adrian, Adrian. And you see her start to, to run towards him and make her way through the crowd and into the ring. And then in this moment, that will make a grown man cry every time. Not me, but other grown men. <laughs> Adrian comes into the ring, and Rocky is looking directly at her, and he's just got this look on his face, right? Like, I did it. I didn't, I didn't go down. I'm still standing here. I went the whole fight. And her words to him are just, I love you. I love you. And in that, in that moment, it doesn't matter that he was still a loser in the eyes of literally everyone because the one who mattered to him said, I love you. I'm proud of you. And some of you need to hear this today. Jesus sees you. And he knows your works. And you've been knocked down. And you get back up. And you're trying to be obedient, and it's not with perfection. You're flawed. But Jesus sees the way that you keep getting back up, and you're chasing after him. And what he's saying is, hey, that doesn't go unnoticed. Jesus saying to you, I appreciate you. I am proud of you. I love you. Some of you need to hear that. That's a reality for you. And that, that just... That type of love has a way of drowning out everything else, right? The reality is we're not called to just keep Jesus' word in a vacuum. Right? We're in a hostile world, so we're going to experience some, some pushback. So Jesus shows us this third, this last identifying marker of true greatness. He says endurance. Look at verse 10. Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, 
I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. For the, the church in Philadelphia, suffering was a reality, right? We, we saw back there that uh, there were, there were some, some non-believing Jews that were giving them trouble, and we don't know what else was happening. We don't know what other kinds of, of suffering that they experienced and endured, but we do know that they endured it in a way that actually imitated Jesus' own endurance. They stood firm. Right? They didn't shrink back. They were courageous. We also know that there was more to come. Jesus speaks of this hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. This hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. Now, a lot of faithful Bible-honoring Christians over the years have seen this, this passage in different ways, and uh, I just want to tell you what we're seeing happen in the context of this letter, right? Jesus is saying to this church, hey, I, I know that you've suffered. I see that you've endured, and he makes this promise to them. He says, because you've been faithful to me in the past, I am going to be faithful to you in the future, right? I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to reward your faithfulness in the, in the time of suffering that's to come. I'll be faithful. And so this was a, a promise, not that, not that Jesus was going to remove them from suffering, right? This was not the prosperity gospel that says, hey, if you follow Jesus, if you have enough faith, nothing bad will ever happen. You'll never get sick. You'll never hurt. You'll never be sad, Jesus is saying, hey, um, I've got you. And so the, the church could, could take comfort. They could take heart. They could grab this letter that was written to them from Jesus, and they could say, hey, you remember this? We can take heart because we, we can say, come what may, Jesus is committed to preserving our faith. We know that. I've been so encouraged in the last year just watching people in our congregation suffer well. Right? I've been so encouraged. I've seen people that have experienced opposition, that have hurt, walk through depression and sadness, and not shrink back, not give up, not lose hope. But what's even better than that is that we've also been able to see God's faithfulness to them. I've seen friends who are diagnosed with cancer, who have walked through abusive relationships, friends that have uh, obeyed God in the face of opposition, that have battled through infertility, and what we've seen is something beautiful in, in their own spirit, but even more incredible is we've seen Jesus respond to their faithfulness by preserving their faith and keeping them in some really, really hard times. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I hear some of those stories, and when I read about uh, the church in Philadelphia, I feel conviction, right? Like, like I just, I think about my own story, and, and I compare it to those, and it's just like, it's crazy. Um, it's 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 crazy how easily I give up in the face of just a little suffering, just a, a little opposition. Because the reality for us in this room where we struggle, me and you, is it's not like, man, okay, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to be fed to lions. Like a lot of times the, the opposition is like myself. Or it's like if I follow Jesus, that means I won't be able to sleep in today. Right? 
if I really follow Jesus, it, it might actually be inconvenient for me. If I really follow Jesus, if I really follow him, maybe my friends will think I'm weird. Might talk about me behind my back. Maybe I, maybe I won't get to enjoy all the creature comforts that I really, really want. But Jesus' invitation to you, whether you're in a season of suffering right now, or you're in a season where it feels like the stakes are really, really low, is to just endure, to just endure patiently, right? And Jesus says to those who endure, whether, whether it's a little bit of suffering or whether it's a lot, whether your endurance only costs a little or a lot, Jesus says just be faithful with it because the word that comes from Jesus to those who are faithful is well done, good and faithful servant. And he will keep you, he will keep you in the time of suffering, so endure. Now, I realize that none of that is super sexy, but that's really kind of the point, right? For every single person in this room, we hear Jesus' invitations to lean into our weakness, to obey him, right, to endure patiently, and we feel a little piece of ourself die, right? It's like, oh man, I didn't really want to hear that today. I don't want to do that. Like for, for a lot of us, we've just kind of bought into what the culture says about greatness, and we've chased it, and today we hear Jesus' voice saying, hey, quit chasing that. Man, that's hollow. That does not lead to life. It doesn't lead to life. And the reality, whether you believe it or not, is that Jesus alone has the authority to make that call. So to the church that is not that great in the eyes of the world, Jesus ends with this. He says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Now I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the eyes of the world, this church is weak, they're lame. They are foolish. feels like they're just sort of drifting through this life as pilgrims who really don't belong anywhere. But Jesus says right here, he says, hey, I'm coming back, and I actually have the authority to turn all of that on its head. And here's how. We'll close with this. Jesus gives three metaphors in this text, and uh, we'll look at those in closing. Number one, if we go back to verse 7. This is how Jesus introduces himself. He says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. Jesus uses this metaphor of a key. And if we were to just back up to the beginning of this series where we first kicked off, this is how Jesus introduces himself to John. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, Jesus is reminding us that he has defeated death. He has defeated sin. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated all of our enemies. And he now stands as the king, the conquering king, who has all authority, who has the keys of death in his hands. He has all authority. He goes on, he says, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So he goes on to say, because I have the keys, I'm the one who has the authority to open the door of salvation. I've opened the door of opportunity. I also open the door of salvation. 
And then finally, here's the hope for the one who has all authority, who has opened the door. He says to those of us who feel like pilgrims in this life, he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Friends, every single one of us in this room, we want to be a pillar. And we feel, we feel the pull to be a pillar in this life. The pillar doesn't get moved around. It's there. Right? And it's strong and it's sturdy. And there's a temptation to stand here and now and be known and we want to be loved, and we want accolades, and we want to be remembered long after we're gone. And what Jesus is saying to us is, in this life, true greatness comes as a servant. Despised, rejected, hated, weak. So here's the invitation to Frontline Church, friends. If you're a follower of Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What was he like? Well, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, not great in the world's eyes. But God has highly exalted him. And, and now he's bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Jesus is inviting us to walk this world as pilgrims in this life so that we can be pillars in eternity. That is true greatness.